Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Johanna Wagstaff, in for Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? As some of you may know, I'm a meteorologist. I help connect the dots between weather and climate change, and I do it every day. So when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, I thought I had a pretty good grasp of the solutions that are out there. Enter carbon offsets. At the most basic level, it's a way to make up for the carbon emissions produced in one place by investing in a project that's working to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in another place. Confusing? You're not alone. In fact, my understanding of how offsets work was admittedly vaguer than I realized. The other thing I thought I knew about offsets how I felt about them, because as you'll see, they are not without controversy. So join me. We'll find the answers to what exactly carbon offsets are, who's benefiting from them, and if they really are part of the solution. And know that if you're starting from a place of confusion or conflict, we're in this together. The UN called 2021 a make or break year when it comes to fighting climate change. In a new report, it says nations need stronger, more ambitious plans to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. Here in Canada, the federal government has laid out a plan to get to net zero emissions by 2050. And part of that includes carbon offsets. In fact, Ottawa just announced a new offset program. It's something industrial emitters such as Shell and Husky have pushed for. The only way that you know companies and, and really the, the government of Canada is going to achieve its net zero goals is by unleashing and unlocking the power of offsets across our economy. We need to be able to take investments in one area and incentivize emissions reductions in another area, including, crucially, across provincial boundaries. And as the government works out the details of its new plan, many of you have questions and concerns. The idea of carbon offsets just doesn't resonate with me. All I've heard about is that, you know, oh, they're planting trees. And I don't know where there'd be any oversight on that to prove that anything's getting done. It's concerning to see more tools to kind of sweep pollution under the rug. They give people a chance to avoid reducing their transportation, particularly air travel. I'd rather do something that's tangible that I can look at, see, plant more of, feel, smell. And it just, it has that much more impact in my mind. It's complicated. I have mixed feelings about it, I guess. If they're allowed to purchase offsets, they might not need to actually change their behavior that causes them to need them in the first place. That would be my biggest question. Like, how are they going to do that? So questions remain and skepticism abounds. To help answer some of those questions, we reached Caroline Lee. My name's Caroline Lee. I'm a senior research associate with the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Lee breaks it down like this. In simple terms, a carbon offset is basically the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions that takes place in one area, in one place, that's intended to compensate or to offset, hence the term, emissions taking place elsewhere. The idea was first used to offset pollution near an industrial plant, for example. Then people started thinking bigger picture. 
if greenhouse gas emissions are felt around the world, the idea was you could cut them in one country and keep emitting in another. And the idea really took off for individuals with air travel. During pre-pandemic times, you might have gone to book a flight and been offered the opportunity to purchase a carbon offset. So that might be through, for example, the planting of trees, changing of agricultural practices, which sequester more carbon into the soil, those types of projects. So you can buy an offset for a trip, a company can buy one for a greener image, and because those are choices, they're known as voluntary offsets. There is another kind of offset. Through the compliance market. And these types of offsets are available for companies or individuals to purchase who are required to reduce their emissions as a result of a policy. And this is the context in Canada in which we're talking more about offsets most recently because the federal government has proposed regulations for the compliance market. So that's how it's supposed to work. But in reality, there are challenges. Proving that a project is additional beyond what would have happened otherwise can be very challenging. Lee uses the example of a wind farm. Would it have been built anyway through some other kind of funding? And how do we know that? Then you have to think about how long the offset will last. A forest offset would release carbon if, say, a wildfire strikes. And so that requires really strong management over a long period of time for some of these projects, which is really difficult. And you have to make sure the math checks out. Once an offset is used, it can't be used again. Two countries can't count the same offset. After all that, do offsets help countries meet their climate targets? The carbon offset market in Canada and in other places has been developed with the intention of providing more choice as to how a company meets their emissions reductions obligations. Because offsets are just one part of a compliance system. Lee explains the bigger player is the carbon price. If the price is high enough and if it covers enough emitters, it can be a really important driver of change. The offset market usually isn't considered as important a driver in that same way. So whether you see a carbon price of $1 a ton versus $100 a ton is going to change your level of incentive to reduce your own emissions. Under the federal program, those emitters covered under the carbon price will be able to turn to offsets in other sectors as a cheaper way to buy some of their compliance. And we'd see emissions go down in sectors like forestry, agriculture, and waste. So that's the theory. But in practice, my next guest argues offsets create both concrete and psychological challenges to mitigating carbon emissions. Kate Irvin is an associate professor at St. Mary's University in Halifax. She researches carbon markets and the role offsets have played in climate policy. And she says in recent years, she's noticed a change. Countries are recognizing that on the one hand, they need to show that they're serious about dealing with climate change. And on the other hand, I think the reality is, is that they're not yet actually taking it seriously. And so this is where carbon offsetting comes in. We have countries choosing uh, policy tools like carbon offsetting um, to allow them to say, look, we've got this increased ambition. Look, we're going to lower our emissions. Um, and carbon offsetting provides a way to say that they're doing something and it looks good, but it doesn't require those really difficult, hard decisions. The biggest problem with carbon offsets, and I think this is often not apparent when we talk about them, 
is that they don't actually lower emissions. They're not a strategy for reducing emissions overall. And then that leads to a whole host of other problems. Carbon offsets, they lower our ambition to actually do what needs to be done. They allow governments to continue to push real deep ambitious action down the road. And so I, I think it's a dangerous diversion because when the public hears about offsetting or regular people, you know, let's be honest. I think many of us want to hear and governments want to be able to tell us that we can deal with this problem without any significant pain, without any, uh, you know, need for significant change to our lifestyles or the way we're going about things. And we get to be told that this is all win-win and everyone's happy. Um, and I think that's what many of us want to hear. But I would say that no credible climate scientist is going to tell us that this isn't going to require significant change. Offsetting allows us to believe that, you know, it's going to be painless. It's not actually going to hurt. And I think that many of us like that narrative because then we can continue to go about business as usual. And this is the dream that it sells us. So I think it's a very dangerous distraction. So that's the critique now. But offsetting is an idea the United Nations has used at a global scale for more than two decades. Projects that promise to prevent deforestation in parts of West Africa, Southeast Asia, and South America by having polluters in other parts of the world pay for it as an offset. Adjani'i Ashiabi is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Geography at the University of Calgary. Hi, Adjani'i. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you've studied forest offsets that are part of the Red Plus program. That's reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. What was the intent of this program? So the intent is to sort of direct funds from the Global North, both through uh, donor funds, so public donor funds, but also market funds, market finance, you know, direct all of those to the global south, particularly tropical forest countries, uh, where they can then be used to sort of incentivize forest conservation as a means to address carbon emissions, generate carbon offsets or generate carbon credits to incentivize forest conservation. So forest conservation, what might that mean? Is it, you know, what, what are they also trying to stop along with uh, the management side of things? So what, what constitutes forest conservation under Red Plus? Uh, is very broad. So it's everything from actually keeping tropical forests standing to regenerating, you know, forests or even replanting new areas. So, but, but the idea in Red Plus is to beyond keeping the forest standing and generating carbon offsets from that, uh, there's also the idea of co-benefits. So the idea that Red Plus should also provide additional benefits. The aim of Red Plus is to, um, is to keep forest standing while compensating uh, those communities, uh, improving their livelihoods, uh, improving forest governance generally in the global south, but also uh, conserving biodiversity. So if that was the intent, what happened in reality? Programs with this kind of win-win ambition, massive scale, you know, across countries. In reality, not a lot was achieved uh, in terms of meeting those objectives. So in a good number of countries, deforestation actually increased during the Red Plus years. 
but also in many, many countries, there were cases of uh, marginalization of, of local communities and indigenous peoples. Uh, there were cases of rights abuses. You know, there were cases in which communities were either excluded from the forest, so they were banned from entering the forest, you know, to carry on with their livelihood activities. In some other cases, for instance, in Kenya, we had cases where communities were actually uh, dispossessed of, of the forest. They were sort of... Uh, chest of the of the forest chest of the land uh, yeah you talked about sort of land ownership issues what about the actual cutting down of trees did did that just get moved to another area what happened with those activities in red plus they would call that leakage so that was one of the major problems uh the idea that once you fence off a particular area and, and push people off the land or off the forest uh, what then happens is that much of that activity gets displaced, whether it's removal of trees for timber, uh, for wood, or it's farming within the forest landscape. Other, other forest-based activities basically just moved to neighboring uh, landscapes uh, where these restrictions were not in place. So how much were local communities actually profiting then from these offsets? And what we found from years of research on Red Plus is that a great deal of Red Plus funds actually go towards consultancy, towards program design, towards, you know, piloting. In many, many cases, if anything gets to communities at all, it's usually uh, 5 or 10% of all the communities involved in a particular program being given, you know, stipends or being uh, given a small amount for community projects, you know, whether building of a school or they try to build a small hospital, they amount to nothing compared to what communities have been asked to give up in terms of access to the forest and, and, and livelihood activities uh, that are based in the forest. I wanted to ask you about one uh, specific country that you looked at, Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. was happening with forest offsets there? The case in Nigeria got really complex, really quick. The forestation actually increased in Cross River State, where, where Red Plus was being piloted on the ground. Red Plus is meant to pay people to keep the forest. But in cases where they've not received any incentive to, to keep the forest, you know, it doesn't make sense to expect anything to change. What the crossover state government then did was to actually impose a ban on forest exploitation. So actually use the coercive means essentially to get people off the forest. A task force was constituted to sort of enforce this ban on the ground. The task force couldn't police the forest landscape, would then wait on the highway, you know, for the timber to come out and then they confiscate the timber. They also walked through a network of informants. So informants living in communities who, who basically listen out to, to the noise of chainsaws, you know, cutting trees. But the most important driver of deforestation in Cross River during this period was industrial logging. Industrial logging bankrolled and supported by the states, sometimes even supported by uh, international funders. So you have those industrial actors, you know, trying to create plantation, fruits plantation, palm oil plantation. So they go into the forest, clear the forest, and begin to plant. So all of that contributed to an increase in deforestation under under Red Plus. I wanted to ask you, I mean, some of these problems sounds like they tried to get addressed, but were failed. I, I've heard you use the yeah. term zombies to describe the legacy of some of these yeah. offset programs. Why is that? Yeah. Red Plus has failed to stop deforestation, yet, you know, there continues to be uh, a lot of interest, you know, in Red Plus at the international level. It, what we found is that 
many of the schemes have achieved too little, you know, to, to actually matter at all. So the sense in which the schemes continue to be advocated for, you know, they continue to be mobilized, you know, uncritically at the international level, despite their messiness on the ground and their failure to actually address climate change is what I what I describe as zombies. So they are basically zombies, you know, dead essentially, but you know, still still manage to be mobilized, you know, in particular ways, you know, driving action, uh, mindless action, I, I would say, in the way that a zombie sort of walks on the landscape. Yeah, that does create a, a visual. Uh, yeah. You're taking your research about forest offsets to British Columbia. Uh, what things yeah. are you looking out for? The experience will is definitely different from what we've seen in the tropics. Definitely, for all kinds of reasons, you know, uh, not least uh, the clarity of uh, forest and land tenure in BC. So, communities, the, the rights of communities to manage their forest is well recognized in BC. You have this well developed uh, community forest committees or organizations, you know, that, that manage forests for communities. So, we're not likely to see the kind of you know. Uh, complexities that we've seen in the tropics in, in BC, but of course, I mean, uh, there are also issues that are peculiar to BC that, uh, that are really interesting to explore in this sense. Mm, these are all big questions. Uh, Adani, best of luck with your research. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. As Ashiyabi mentioned, carbon offset projects have caused some damage but they also may have helped some rural and indigenous communities around the world. In British Columbia, the Great Bear Rainforest Carbon Project generates about a million tons of offset credits every year. Those pay for conservation and services in more than a dozen First Nations. Marilyn Slett is president of Coastal First Nations. She's also chief counselor of the Heltzik Tribal Council. Hello. Hi. Why did Coastal First Nations want to get into offsets in the first place? Coastal First Nations is an alliance of uh, coastal communities from the Central Coast, North Coast, up to Haida Gwaii. Five years ago, we did sign off on the Coastal Great Bear uh, or the Great Bear Agreement, Land Use Agreement. And our territories require monitoring, and these take resources. So for us, it was how to most effectively protect our communities and, and make sure that we're monitoring and we're doing everything that we can to continue with the spirit of the agreement and also you know, underpinning the values that we have here in the communities. And so far, what impact have offsets had in that effort to help conserve the, the forest? For HealthSick, we have an integrated resource uh, department. It's a stewardship department. And we have a guardian watchman that we've hired. The guardian watchmen are the eyes and ears out on the water. And there's a component that supports our traditional governance. Um, that's our HEMAS. And uh, they have a, a council and they provide you know, direction over everything, title and rights to, to our community, conservation, uh, the administration of our offices. Uh, these all contribute to the human well-being. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there there is still some logging that happens now, right? 
There is. And that logging was definitely um, part of that uh, agreement five years ago. How does that compare to the logging done, say, 20 years ago? Uh, certainly, um, you know, you know, not seeing the clear cutting and, you know, the policy developments that we're working on with uh, government to government relationships. So we see that as, you know, definitely uh, progress moving forward. Mm, and who are the, the offset biggest buyers? Uh, the biggest buyers is uh, the provincial government, but there is others um, through a voluntary market. And, you know, I think that what sets our program apart is it is Indigenous led. It is reinvested it's into our communities. You know, we have through our communities up and down the coast, you know, there's 20,000 members, you know, included in, in the coastal First Nations. So, you know, some are investing into Aboriginal ecotourism. There's a lot of capacity and development happening in our communities, really supporting our communities as well. The project has been running for more than a decade. What have been the biggest challenges or, or lessons learned so far? We knew that, you know, this agreement, GBR agreement, that the implementation, the monitoring, the protection, you know, that really does fall onto our communities. We live here, and it ought to, because we live here. This is our our homes. But we knew that that was going to take a lot of work uh, together. So uh, rising up to, you know, those challenges to be able to work so collaboratively together to protect what we have together. This formal, you know, working relationship with Coastal First Nations has really strengthened, you know, the ties of our communities. How about uh, the, the sales so far? Are they, are they what you expected? Uh, definitely. They've been slow. You know, would definitely love to be able to expand on them. So we hear all the time that we're in a climate emergency. We need to reduce emissions everywhere. So shouldn't protecting forests be part of that bigger picture climate plan? It definitely should be. I mean, our values as Indigenous people have sustained us since millennia. Our sustained livelihood has depended on a healthy sea and a healthy ocean and, and land. So for us, working and these reconciliation protocols, these agreements that we signed off on, they ought to be carried out for the betterment of the people that live here. How does this kind of project connect to self-determination or, or reconciliation? We have a HEMAS council that is supported with this project in our community. And our HEMAS, those are our traditional chiefs in, in our nation. And they are the traditional governing holders of our communities. And, and we have a relationship with our chiefs as an elected council where we work together for the betterment of our community. And largely, you know, when we look at funding and work that happens, it, it does go towards, you know, elected leadership. This is specific. We use it to support our HEMAs. We wouldn't be able to do the work that we're doing without working with our traditional chiefs. And the support that we've been able to have under this offset program uh, has been incredible in terms of the work that we're able to do. When you buy these carbon offsets from, from us, you're investing back into our communities, that you're investing into stewardship, into human well-being, into the self-determination of our communities. That's an incredible investment. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for your time and insights today. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. You too. Marilyn Slett is president of Coastal First Nations. She's also chief counselor of the Heltzik Tribal Council. 
Here's the thing. I'm still left wondering why something like the Great Bear Rainforest needs offset buyers in the first place. Shouldn't protecting and putting money into the communities to help manage the forests be a priority in and of itself? When people will say, well, they should have just protected the forests in the Great Bear Rainforest, I absolutely agree. That's Joseph Pallant. The world's first Kyoto Clean Development Mechanism. Uh, and so I joined them to work on that and then have got to arc through developing projects uh, in BC, Canada, around the world, um, both for a little company that I ran. He's a pioneer in forest-based offsetting in BC and now the director of climate innovation at EcoTrust Canada. He's also a champion of carbon offsets. So there is a but coming. When people will say, well, they should have just protected the forests in the Great Bear Rainforest. I absolutely agree. But if you look at the current reality around protection in, in other unprotected old growth areas in British Columbia, we see that um, progress has not been fast enough and will still be very incomplete, even if everything currently contemplated comes to pass. And he argues offsets are one tool in dealing with climate change. I see carbon offsets as a tool to bring the future forward to today. We have the technologies necessary to be climate change. We have windmills the size of a soccer pitch. We have photovoltaic cells that get electricity from the sun, man. Um, we have all these tools, um, but what we're missing and what carbon offsets provide is an economic mechanism to enable people to go and deploy these activities because the value that's created by their success in getting or keeping carbon out of the atmosphere has value to society. It has value to the planet. And when we have regulated or good voluntary offset systems in place. It has value to companies and to people, and they can pay for that. Now, as you heard earlier, offsets trade in emissions. They don't actually reduce them globally. So we asked Pallant if he's worried our collective ambition to get off fossil fuels has been hindered by offsets. They may, but if government's doing its job and people are doing our job to push government, it may make economic sense to do that, you know, for a first couple of years. But as we continue to tighten the cap on allowed emissions, you can only sort of be paying out of pocket for so long. And, you know, any business worth its salt is going to look around at the opportunities to reduce emissions within its own fence line. Um, it's going to do as many of those as they can afford. And that will often sort of be regulated by what's the cost of emission reduction outcomes um, outside of their fence line. Pallant says offsets are not just a last-ditch effort, but a valuable tool to mitigate our carbon footprint. We need all of the tools in the toolkit. The tools will tend to have their, you know, affinity or most effective areas of deployment. So a hammer is good at banging a nail, a screwdriver is good at putting in a screw, backhoe is good for digging a hole. Carbon offsets are amazing for driving resources into projects that get or keep carbon out of the atmosphere that wouldn't have happened without an offset project. Joseph Pallant is the Director of Climate Innovation at EcoTrust Canada. The public can comment on the new federal offset plan until May 5th, with final regulations slated for fall. That does it for us this week. If you haven't given us a review yet, please do. Tell a friend. It helps move the climate conversation forward. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team. Our intern, Serena Renner. Associate producers, Rachel Sanders and Jennifer Van Evra. 
Producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our sound engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. And our executive producer is Joe Melanson. I'm Johanna Wagstaff. Laura Lynch is back next week. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.